Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Patrick Georgioff. Today, we're going to talk about an extremely important topic, end-of-life care and decision-making. It's something that is a challenge for many surgeons, but it's rarely discussed and is certainly not taught in much detail. And we're very lucky today to be joined by Dr. Gretchen Swarzy, Associate Professor of Vascular Surgery at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. She received her MD and Master in Public Policy from Harvard, completed general surgery residency at Mass General, and Vascular Surgery Fellowship at the University of Chicago, where she also completed a Medical Ethics Fellowship. Dr. Schwarzy is an expert in surgical decision-making, informed consent, advanced directives, and end-of-life care. And she's the creator of the Best Case, Worst Case tool, which is part of the Patient Preferences Project that she leads out of Madison. Dr. Schwarzy, I'm thrilled to have you on Behind the Knife today. Uh, Best case, worst case scenarios have played a central part in my uh, practice as a trauma surgeon and intensivist, so I'm particularly happy to have you on today. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Now, the best case, worst case tool helps improve communication between older patients and their surgeons so that patients can avoid unwanted treatment and also make decisions that align with their values, their preferences, and their goals. And as most of our listeners know, that is definitely not easy to do. It's extremely challenging. And as surgeons, these kind of discussions are commonplace. So Gretchen, what was the need uh, for the best case, worst case tool and how does it help? It's a great question, Patrick. Um, People have heard me talk before will have heard this story, but I think it's such a good way to describe why best case, worst case is important. And I often tell this story about a patient who came to our hospital many years ago at this point. She was in her late 70s, and I think all of us might have described her as frail. She had chronic kidney disease. She was on home oxygen. She was making it at home on a walker, but she really just had great family support, and that's why she was still at home. She came into our hospital with a tender thoracal abdominal aneurysm, and my partner sat down and talked to her and her family for a long time about what to do. And he said, you know, if we do surgery, you have a 50% chance of dying. If we do surgery, you have a 60% chance of being on dialysis afterwards. And if we do surgery, a chance of on a meter. And very appropriately, he offered them an alternative of comfort-focused palliative care. And they sat down and they thought about it for a long time, and they decided ultimately to go forward with surgery. So they took her to the operating room the next day. She had a big 10-hour case. The following day, the surgical team was rounding on her in the ICU, and they were very pleased. She was making a little urine. She didn't require any blood products. Overall, it was the best that they could hope for. A few hours later, her family came by and you know exactly what they saw. She was puffy. There were tubes sticking out of everywhere, a whole row of drips running behind her. And they took one look at her and turned around and looked at the team and said, no, this is not okay. She never would have wanted this. 
And if I had to describe what happened to this woman, I would say that she got unwanted care. And if I had to describe why it happened, I would say it is the way that we've all been taught to describe the consequences of surgery to patients. And if you can think about how her family went through this, right? They said, well, if she has a 50% chance of dying, she's a 50% chance of living. She has a 60% chance of being on dialysis. Well, that's a 40% chance of not being on dialysis. And then of course she had a 20% chance of not being stuck on a ventilator. And they just went down the numbers 50, 40, 20 and thought, wow, she's got a 20% chance of being exactly like she was before surgery, after surgery. And there's not a surgeon in the world who would have thought that that was true. And so I would say that the way we've been taught to get informed consent doesn't help our patients the way we need it to. And the way best case, worst case came up is I'd written a paper about this issue of withdrawal of life-supporting treatments in post-operative surgical patients. And my dear colleague, Toby Campbell, who's a palliative care um, thoracic oncologist, came by my office. He's like, you know, I'm doing this thing with my cancer patients. And I talk about the best case scenario and the worst case scenario. And we sat down and mapped out a way to have a graphic aid and really teach surgeons how to do this strategy, which we thought would inform patients much better about the consequences of surgery. Right. I think this idea of of informed consent is is central to the best case, worst case scenario, because really we as surgeons uh, commonly use the language of informed consent to disclose isolated procedural risk, right? You mentioned some percentages, right? 25% chance of renal failure or 30% chance of stroke, something along those lines. But you know, th- this does, in fact, satisfy the legal requirements for informed consent, but it, it does not allow patients to really uh, consider how they might experience adverse outcomes or even anticipated and expected downstream consequences of certain decisions. So that that experience uh, and, and, and playing that out and telling a story about that experience, which we know a lot of what's going to happen after surgery. We don't know everything, but we know a lot is is core to best case, worst case scenario. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think, you know, you and I can imagine what it looks like when somebody has a 50% chance of mortality postoperatively. And we have an imagination, like we have a vision in our mind of what it looks like to have a complication. First of all, none of these things ever happen in isolation. Like how many patients just get one complication? And this idea that if I say you have a 50% chance of having a heart attack after surgery, and I have a vision of what that is, I can't imagine that patients have that same vision. And so part of what we're trying to do is not just say there are these things that will happen or this outcome that you might get far downstream, but let's talk about how you might experience it. What would it be like if you got stuck in the ICU for a few days? What would your life be like in order to recover from this? And at the end of it, what does it mean to survive? And so it's really trying to um, have patients anticipate and prepare for changes that we all know are going to happen after surgery. And I, I think you're right, Patrick, that this like, you know, describing these risks is really not helpful for patients to sort of have an idea in their mind about what it would mean to go through surgery, especially a big high risk operation. Right. And this is where the best case, worst case scenario is so helpful. So let's jump right in to the five key steps to best case, worst case. Yeah. So the first step is this idea of breaking bad news. And not all of these conversations have to be bad news conversations, but I do think people need a shot across the bow. 
like something that says we're going to have a real conversation. I think when you're trying to think through like the least worst option, you definitely need to start with this is bad news. I'm afraid that even with surgery, things are not going to go as we had planned. The next issue is the graphic aid. It's a simple pen and paper diagram with two straight lines. Each line represents a treatment. The star at the top represents the best case scenario and the box on the bottom represents the worst case scenario. You can do this on the fly when you're having the conversation, but I often do it beforehand because it helps me organize my thoughts. The scenario planning part is the most important part, which is really this idea of let me tell you a story about what this looks like if everything goes as best we might hope for. And it starts with you're going to have an operation, but then you want to think through like, well, what happens the next day? What happens the day after that? What do things look like a month from now or three months from now, particularly in people who already have life-limiting illness, because at some point that life-limiting illness is going to catch up with them. And so we're not talking about surviving for the next 10 years. We're talking about, you know, what's going to happen in six months. The fourth step is actually probably the hardest. And I think sometimes you might want to outsource that or at least get some help. And this is the idea of trying to understand what matters to patients what they're hoping for, and what are the limits of what they can tolerate. So it's eliciting preferences. And then the last step is this idea of making a recommendation. Great. These key steps are critical. So let's do a quick recap. Number one is we want to make sure to explicitly break bad news. Number two, we're going to make a diagram that shows uh, two different care options and best and worst and most likely scenarios along those different care options. Then we're going to tell a story extremely important, not informed consent, but telling a story. Then we're going to elicit a response from the patient and or their family. How are they thinking about this right now? And then five, we want to make a clear recommendation based on the patient's preferences or the family's preferences. Now, a lot of this sounds simple, but it's it's not. It's really quite nuanced and is very challenging to put into practice. And that's why I'd recommend all of our listeners Uh, check out patientpreferences.org where you can watch whiteboard videos that very clearly explain the best case, worst case approach. They're very nicely done videos. Again, I would highly recommend everyone check them out. Now, I've been using best case, worst case scenario for years. And when I first started, there were three particular areas that stuck out to me as being very novel and and quite clever. I mean, number one, is to clearly state the best case scenario for our patients and to state it as such. Say so this is, if, I'm, if, I, if I operate, if I do a lesser operation, if we do some medical care, whatever it may be, whatever your, your comparison treatments are, this is your best case scenario and make a story to tell them about that. That's so powerful because so often we don't, uh, especially as surgeons, don't share that that best case scenario explicitly. And a lot of times the best case scenario is bad. Yeah. And I just want to jump in here for a second, Patrick. And I think we're often set up, right? The intensivist in the MICU will call you and say, you know, their colon's perforated and the surgeon is coming to tell you how they're going to fix your colon. And so the family just hears, well, you're going to fix my problem. And then you say, well, we could take your colon out and there are all these risks, but that actually does not describe for the family what that would mean if surgery were successful. So I think you're right. Like by really illustrating the best, like the best we could hope for if we take your colon out after you've been sick in the ICU for two weeks already is really different than saying, I'm going to fix your problem by taking your colon out. 
Well, and sometimes I even surprise myself when I, you know, truthfully share that best case scenario. When you say it out loud and you describe it in detail, it's like, oh my goodness, like this sounds terrible. Like, what are we, what are we doing? We got to make, you know, this, this sounds no good. And, and, and that brings me to the second reason I love best case, worst case is because you tell a story. And this is, um, this is really about quality storytelling because patients and their families cannot and should not be expected to understand what's going to happen after surgery. They cannot and should not be expected to know what it's like to be on dialysis, to have a trach, be on a vent, et cetera. And that's our job as surgeons, intensivists, et cetera, to, to explain that to them, but to describe it to them, to use uh, terms that are easy, understandable, to avoid jargon and to paint this picture as best we can, we use our words, but also using best case, worst case, we also use a written a diagram and graphic, uh, which again, we're going to go into more detail in a minute about how to make that, but that the family can also keep that and hold on to that and refer to that, uh, which is extremely important because that conversation is overwhelming always. And then to leave something for them, that's a detailed piece of information that is huge. And then finally, the, the third reason I absolutely love it is because best case, worst case scenario asks that you make a recommendation, right? That is extremely important because I've seen um, um, colleagues, I've seen during training, this kind of like buffet option of, you know, you choose uh, and you want to talk about all the different possibilities of, for treatment and um, the ups and upside and downside of those possibilities or, or different options for treatment. But again, you are the professional. And if you appropriately can elicit a response from the family, especially if you know that family well or the, and the patient well, then you should be able to make a recommendation for them. It may not be the recommendation the family takes uh, or the patient takes, but that is part of you know, your duty, I think, as a surgeon. Uh, Gretchen, what do you think about that last? I think you could probably state it more eloquently than me, but... Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we teach surgeons to do this all the time and often we get to the make a recommendations part and we say, okay, you've done a great job so far. Now make a recommendation. And they're like, I can't do that. They're like, my job is to offer choices and the patient's job is to choose. And I think, well, that is just a real big misunderstanding of what it means to support autonomy. That's abandoning people to something I might call absolute autonomy. And I think at the end of the day, all of us show up to our professional relationships with expectations of the person's expertise to help us out. Like if I go to my mechanic or to my financial planner, I have expectations that they're going to use their professional knowledge to help me. And I think the patients expect the same from us. And so once you've understood what is valuable to the patient, I think it's really important to say, hey, this is what I just heard is that your mother is not going to tolerate five days in the ICU only to be able to go to a nursing home afterwards and all of these other treatments that she's going to need in order just to survive. And given what you just told me about your mom, I really think that we shouldn't go forward with this operation. I think we should use a comfort focused strategy. And I think that's what patients expect of us. And I often tell this story, like the last thing in the world I want to learn from my financial planner is all about the stock and bond market. Like I want the financial planner to say, look, Gretchen, I know you wanted to retire at age 65. You got two kids to get through college and you're really risk averse with your money. So this is the portfolio you should be in. And I think we as surgeons, we should be doing the same thing, quite frankly. Yeah, that's a perfect analogy. Now, now, what do you say to the surgeons that you work with who say, well, well, I already do this. This is already <laughs> part, part of my practice. 
Yeah, everybody says that, um, which is great. You know, I love that surgeons are super confident. Um, I think what I would say is I have the data. And one of the things my lab has done for years is audio record surgeons talking to patients, mostly older adults and mostly major operations like cardiac surgeons and neurosurgeons, oncologists, vascular surgeons. And I think the remarkable thing is we all kind of do it the same way. And um, we don't really do this. And even I, you know, I mean, I'm like kind of the inventor-ish of this thing. And I don't use best case, worst case all the time. And I definitely, um, there are things that I would like to do better when I talk to patients about surgery. I'm thinking about it all the time, but it's hard to break those habits. Right. So that, so let's then talk about how you, how you actually use best case, worst case. So what are the, we talked about the five steps, but how are you going to apply that? So we can use a, a case scenario, um, Gretchen, that comes from your, uh, your video, uh, one of three videos on uh, best case, worst case, including surgery uh, in general, ICU and nephrology. And uh, this is regarding a fictional, but not so fictional character, Mr. Lombardi. Yeah. So Mr. Lombardi, this is the OG version in my lab. We call it the OG version. Um, So Mr. Lombardi is 85. He's got diabetes and obesity, and he's got a little cognitive um, disability as well. He's got a little early stage Alzheimer's and he's been in the ICU for several days um, with some respiratory distress. And you have been called to see him because now it looks like he's got toxic megacolon and he's just stopped making urine. He's pretty sick. His white count's 25. And you go to see him and talk to his family about whether he should have a total colectomy. And the first thing you want to say to Mr. Lombardi's family is, this is bad news, right? Even though Mr. Lombardi has been here for several days and every day they've said, oh, he's really sick, this is different. Things are different now. And this is bad news. And I am worried that even with surgery, things may not go the way we want them to. So I'd start with that shot across the bow because that will allow them to, you know, sort of get ready for the rest of the conversation. So the second piece is really making that graphic aid. And like I said, it's, you know, it's something you could definitely do while you're sitting there. And oftentimes I get this complaint that people cannot find paper in the hospital. Um, go steal it out of the printer. That's where I usually find it. You know, the printer in the ICU. Is that where you find it too, Patrick? That is exactly where I find it. Now, the question is, do you, do you have to... I'm sure you get this question a lot. Do you have to use this graphic aid and make this graphic aid uh, to do best case, worst case scenario? Yeah. So you can do scenario planning and you can tell stories. At the end of the day, patients rarely remember exactly what we said when we leave the room. So it's really helpful for them to have this reference. I also think we should remember the other people around the patient who have to deal with them after we're not there. And they sort of like, we leave the room and they look at the nurse and they say, what did he say? Finally, when we tested this with surgeons in our hospital, we actually went to patients and families' houses after we did this in the hospital with them. And unprompted, they would go to some drawer in their house and pull out the graphic aid. And they'd say, when we were in the hospital, the surgeon used this and it really, really helped. In fact, the um, that New England Journal paper about um, Father Andrew, that's not his real name, but he was a priest. Um, you know, ultimately they decided to go with comfort-focused palliative care and his niece told us that she used the graphic aid 
um, traveling around the country after he had died to explain to family members why they made the decision they made. So I think it's not necessary for you to use it as a surgeon, but I think it is super helpful for patients and families to have something to hold on to and something to visualize this idea that there is a range of things that could happen afterwards and really point to where the uncertainty lies. And then what we know might happen if things go well, what we know might happen if things go poorly. Right. And we're going to link up to that New England Journal of Medicine article uh, that you mentioned on uh, scenario planning in our show notes so our listeners can hear that. Um, but I think that's that's critical, having that piece of paper. I mean, that goes for a lot of things as well. When you're just talking about surgery, you draw you know, you know, a picture of a colon or something, you start showing people where you're cutting things out. That's just, it's critical for people to understand. And I, I think that that's a key part of this without a doubt. Um, so, so number one, you came, you came into Mr. Lombardi's room, you talked to family and you gave them the bad news, you broke the bad news. And then number two, we're going to start drawing out these options, right? So how, you know, we're on audio here and, and you have, again, excellent videos online, but can you describe as best you can, how you actually draw this out? Yeah. I mean, you don't have to be much of an artist, quite frankly, it's two straight lines two vertical straight lines. Um, And at the top, each line has a star. And at the bottom, each line has a square. Um, And then you're going to use an oval or just a circle on the line to describe what you think is most likely. And sometimes you might use that oval just to circle the star at the top, or your oval might be way down at the bottom near the worst case scenario. I would say the hardest part is thinking about, well, what do these lines represent? Right. One line, at least for surgeons, is going to be some sort of operation. But the other line could be a range of things, right? best medical management, a lesser operation. I mean, in vascular surgery, there's always some other smaller operation you could do. It may not be the Cadillac, but it's certainly something that may be more tolerable. It might be comfort-focused palliative care. For Mr. Lombardi, it's pretty straightforward, right? It's a total colectomy or it's comfort-focused palliative care. I don't think that, I mean, it's been a long time since I've done general surgery. Maybe there's something else you could do, but. Nope. Uh, that's that's right on, <laughs> right on me. So so let's, pre- let's pretend we're in Mr. Lombardi's room. Yeah. Uh, he's sick on the ventilator and you have, mm-hmm. you have three or four family members in the room. Post-COVID, people are allowed in the room again. Uh, right. What do you, what do you, you, you drew the diagram, you've got these vertical mm-hmm. lines, a star at the top, you've got a square at the bottom, you get a circle showing the most likely. How do you, what do you say to Mr. Lombardi's family yeah. specifically in this scenario? What do you say to them about the best, worst, and most likely scenarios? Yeah. And, you know, I start just explaining the diagram. I wrote this down on a piece of paper. I'm hoping it will help. I want to talk to you about the fact that there are two ways we have a choice. Right. There are two things that we could think of to do. One is a colectomy. The other is comfort focused palliative care. I'm going to start here with this idea of going to surgery. And this star represents what we are hoping for is everything goes as well as we might imagine. What is the best case scenario? Well, we take Mr. Lombardi to the operating room. We probably operate for two or three hours. I don't know that that's kind of long it would be to get in school at this point. He would need an ostomy at the end. He'd have a bag and then he'd probably come back to the ICU and be pretty sick for several days. You know, hopefully we can get him resuscitated and maybe after four or five days, we can get the breathing tube out. But this is a lot for an 85 year old guy who has already got some health problems. So I really think if we're very lucky, he'd probably need another week or two in the hospital. And that's if we don't have any complications. 
If he's able to get through that, I think we could get him out of the hospital, but he'd really need to go to a facility. I don't see him going home after this, and he may end up in a nursing home long term. It's definitely going to send him, set him back and probably shorten his life. You know, so if I'm thinking about Mr. Lombardi's, thinking about your dad's life, maybe another year or two, if we're really, really lucky, that's the best case scenario. And what about the worst case scenario? How would you yeah, talk with them I mean, about that? Because we know what that is, but how do, you, <laughs> how do you discuss that with them? So, I mean, that's a funny thing, right? This idea that we know what that is. Like, okay, in my mind, the worst case scenario is he freaking dies on the table. Like that sucks for me. Um, but actually we did focus groups in Wisconsin, all over the state with older adults at senior centers. And that worst case scenario sounds pretty freaking good to them, which is that you say, I'm going to try, I go to sleep and I never wake up. And that sounds very peaceful. Um, the worst case scenario is actually worse than that for them. And that's, we go Which to the Which is important, operating. right? That's super important. Absolutely, right? Um, like people don't realize like no one dies in the OR anymore. Like, I mean, I can think of like 10 intraoperative deaths in my lifetime, right? And I'm not a trauma surgeon. So, but, um, you know, I mean, so the worst case scenario is worse than that. The worst case scenario is we take Mr. Lombardi to the operating room and then he goes back to the ICU and complications start to build up. And day in and day out, there's another problem and another issue. And after three weeks, ultimately, we decide this isn't going to work out for Mr. Lombardi. And his family makes a decision to withdraw life-sustaining treatments. And that is way worse than going to sleep and never waking up. Right, which I think is uh, something that's critical because I've seen and I've done myself and early on using this tool. So, well, the worst case scenario is, is your loved one dies. And that was kind of the end of it. And, and that's actually incorrect because exactly as you said, especially for folks who, who work in the intensive care unit, they know, oh my gosh, can it be worse? It can be torture. Yeah. Uh, one severe complication after another, and then you're, you're a week and a half post-op and you're like, okay, well, let's, let's now, maybe we can talk about palliative care because things are so, uh, or you know, end of life type um, comfort measures because things are so terrible right now. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's important to know that that's worse than absolutely dying in, in the operating room shortly thereafter. Yeah. And I think the way you just described it is a really striking example of what scenario planning does. Like when I think of a post-operative death, I always think of this horrible post-operative three-week course. But if I just say to somebody who doesn't have any experience and has never been in the ICU before and hasn't seen patients like, oh, we could die. And I don't say that's this really shitty course for three weeks in the ICU. They don't imagine that. Like that doesn't even enter their head as one of the possible things that could go, that could be happening after surgery. Without a doubt. Now, now, so we have a best case, we have a worst case. Mm -hmm. And now we have to choose the most likely. And I imagine Mm -hmm. a question that you often receive is, well, how do I determine that? Um, How do I uh, determine what the, what the most likely scenario really is? Yeah. And I think this is where we use, you know, um, our experience our knowledge of the literature to try and figure out, well, what do I know about this patient? You know, what was their health status before they got here? Is this someone who's likely to do really well? Is this someone who's likely to do really poorly? And I think that's the first thing you need to decide. I think if there's huge amounts of uncertainty, I might put the most likely scenario somewhere in between. Cause I'm like, I'm really, I'm really not sure. But I think when you describe the most likely, what you want to say is, Given what I know about you, 
this is what I think is most likely. And I think, you know, there are definitely patients where you're like, this guy looks pretty good for 85. And so I'm going to put most likely up here close to the best case scenario where their toxic megacolon isn't that bad, right? They're still making urine and they still seem actually like they're not so into their sepsis that they're going to, you know, plummet afterwards. Um, And then I think there are other people who you're like, wow, I'm really sorry, but I think what is most likely is way closer to the worst case than I would like. It probably looks a lot like this. Right. And in the New England Journal of Medicine piece, you state that, that the aim is not to develop the correct scenario, but to describe a range of stories illustrating how the future might unfold. And the key is that the stories are plausible and that they demonstrate where uncertainty lies. And have you found that patients and their families are okay with that? That they don't need, they don't need certainty, right? They need, again, this, this, uh, they need plausible um, scenarios that are described to them. Is that right? Yeah. I think when we're teaching physicians, they're really nervous that they're not going to tell the right story. And I think at the end of the day, like who knows the right story? Nobody knows the right story. We don't have a crystal ball and it'd be nice if you did, but you don't. And I think families are very willing to understand that you don't know exactly what's going to happen. But when you say there are multiple ways that this could play out, and let me show you the range of the ways this could play out, they understand that there is uncertainty as well. And I think they understand it a lot better than if you say, well, there's a 50% chance of mortality. That also expresses uncertainty, but that doesn't actually tell you what it would look like if things went well or what it would look like if things don't go well. And so the idea is just to consider a plausible story and show that there are boundaries around the limits of what's possible. Like Mr. Lombardi is not going to Starbucks tomorrow. He's just not. And so, you know, that's not in your plausible story about the best case scenario. He's not going home tomorrow. And so I think that people are nervous to make these stories because they feel like they're going to be held accountable for it. I actually think the patients and families really get these stories, even if the story is not precisely what happens if things go well or poorly. That's right. Okay. So, so number one, we, we broke bad news. Number two, we use the diagram to look at best, worst, and most likely scenarios. And number three is to tell a story. So Gretchen, what other, what else can you tell us about how to tell a story? Um, uh, Certainly we want to avoid a lot of statistics and jargon, but how do you paint a picture? I imagine some people are better at this than others. Yeah, I think some people come to it naturally. I think those of us who have been using probabilistic language to describe the outcomes of surgery for a long time have a harder time generating this story. Um, I think that, you know, start with the story, you know, we're going to go to the operating room and it's going to take us this amount of time. Like, yeah, they probably don't need to know those things, but it helps you get going, right? It's your on-ramp into saying, let me just go day by day. But I think the story has to include sort of what do you anticipate this post-operative recovery to be like? You know, if it goes poorly, what would complications look like? Well, there's probably going to be some intubation involved, right? And then you really need to sort of think of like, where would we be two weeks from now if things went well? Where would we be three months from now, if things went well. And then a lot of these patients are older adults with multiple comorbidities who probably have a life-limiting diagnosis. They have end-stage kidney disease, they have cancer, whatever it is. And I think some reminder of surgery is not going to help any of those things. And overall, I really don't see him living more. You know, I think what we're talking about is months to years, 
years to years. You know, the palliative care clinicians are really good at saying these things, right? They don't say you got six months. They say we're talking about, you know, orders of months, maybe months to a year, that kind of thing. But I think the story has to have like a start, a middle and an end. And it's really about sort of what can people do and where will they be living? And I think those things really matter to people a lot. Sadly, our surgical literature doesn't quantify or even qualify that stuff as much as I would like. Like, you know, it sort of ends at 30 days and it, you know, pins everything as a complication. But if we sort of understood where the patients are, we really need to tell stories about like, well, what can you do? You know, what's your life, and, life and, like after being in the ICU for two weeks as an 85 year old? And, and everyone, you know, especially this day and age, most people are experts, right? And they're given field. Uh, you do vascular surgery, you do trauma surgery. There's a certain uh, uh, patient phenotype. There's a, a relatively you know, limited number of operations. You see the same thing kind of over and over to get used to it. And so, you know, for me as a trauma surgeon, I, it's, it's daily that we have the traumatically head injured patient uh, who can't get off the vent, who needs a trach and a peg, who had a laparotomy and their femur repaired. And they're 70 years old, they have a history of diabetes, COPD, and an MI uh, four years ago, and they're on plavix. Right. That, 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 you could just pick that every day. That'd be the right story. And so for me, at least, one of the things that I've gotten used to is thinking about these outcomes, about what we can, how can I talk to the family and how can I tell this story? Well, for me, that comes back to certain things like, can the patient recognize you? Do we think they're going to be able to recognize you? Do we think they're going to be able to talk, eat? walk, et cetera. And these are very simple things, but I can relate them back to, oh, there's diffuse external injury on the MRI. He will never return to baseline. He may be able to talk more likely not, right? Then you move on to the trach. Well, I know it's COPD and he is on some um, nebulizers at home, for instance. Well, that gives you information to say, I'm, you know, this, this, I feel pretty confident that he'll have to have the trach, that the trach will be in for a month or so. Anyway, so going back, so there's a, but there's a certain number of things that as a trauma surgeon, I know it's the same thing. I can, I can relate to those things. And as a vascular surgeon, Gretchen, I'm sure you have a number of, of kind of uh, constructs in your head that you can fall back on over and over again to, to paint that picture uh, about long-term, early, medium, and long-term outcomes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Particularly, I think those patients who get like huge laparotomies or, you know, big thoracal abdominal incisions, right? You can just imagine what it would be like to be a frail older person to have to go through that and how much it's really going to sort of take the snuff out of them, probably for forever, even though it won't always be so bad as it is early on. But that's a lot for an older person to go through, particularly when their time is limited. Right. And so Mr. Lombardi, with his uh, toxic megacolon uh, and his multiple comorbidities, is in a bad place right now in terms of how ill he is. You talked to the family. Uh, you told them, uh, again, bad, broke the bad news. Best case, worst case, most likely. Artfully described a story about what to expect in terms of the immediate hospitalization period, et cetera, and even longer term about functional outcomes. And now you have to elicit a response, right? Um, and the, the verbiage you use in best case, worst case scenario is, uh, how are you thinking about this right now? Yeah. And I think, you know, if you have an awake patient, that's the right thing to say to an awake patient. How are you thinking about this? And I think the mistake we usually make is we say, what do you want? 
And what we're asking for is a treatment preference. But if they just say, I want surgery, you actually haven't learned very much about what their values and goals are. Like, how would they think about being in a LTAC for a week or two with a trach? What would it be like for them to be able to see their family knowing that they couldn't talk to them? That kind of thing. And so when you don't learn anything about what they're willing to tolerate and what makes life worth living for them, you actually haven't learned enough to make a recommendation. And so I really train people to avoid saying, what do you want? And say something instead, like, how are you thinking about this? The hard part comes, and I think, you know, as surgeons, we're often in the ICU with a patient who doesn't have capacity to make their own decisions for whatever reason, and we're talking to families. And, you know, again, do not say, what would your mother want? Or what would your father want? What would your dad say? about being on a ventilator in the ICU for two weeks. What would your dad say if he could talk to us that the in the best case scenario, he's going to a nursing home afterwards and a lot of the things that he liked to do, fishing, watching the Packers game, all of these things are not gonna be something that he can do anymore. What would he say about that if he could talk to us now? And I think really the idea is to get into people's heads and and use that about what they say in order to make a recommendation. When we did our initial study, patients would say, or families would say, she just wants to live. And the surgeon would be like, great, let's do surgery. And the problem is like, you have not learned anything about what that means. Like live, live where, live how, like, is it truly okay to be at an LTAC with a trach and on dialysis where people just come and visit you every once in a while? Is that enough for them? And I think that, you know, it's a really hard skill. And I think this is the hardest skill of the entire thing to do. And sometimes you need a little help from the palliative care doctors or clinicians. They do a really good job with this sort of eliciting preferences. All right. Let's say you've worked through steps one through three. Yeah, you think you've done a pretty decent job of it. And you move on to elicit a response. And the family says, yes, let's go. We're, we're, we're going ahead with surgery for Michelin Lombardi. But you know in your heart of hearts that this is this is a, a bad situation. It's written all over the wall. Outcomes are going to be rough. How do you check yourself? How do you check the situation to ensure that everyone is, in fact, on the same page? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first thing that we should all be looking for when we're using best case, worst case is, is the best case scenario okay for them? Right. Is it really okay for Mr. Lombardi to be in the ICU for another two weeks and be on dialysis and go to a nursing home? Like, is that really something that Mr. Lombardi would be all right with? So that's number one. If Mr. Lombardi is okay with that, and that is a plausible outcome of surgery, I am okay operating with that on that patient because at the end of the day, you don't know. And you have painted a plausible story about what is the best case scenario. Now, sometimes we have patients who the best case scenario is like, yeah, I can keep the, you know, this patient has like metastatic cancer and now has a perforated viscous. It's like, yeah, I can keep you alive for another three weeks. I think most of us as surgeons are like, that is not okay with me. And I think we would also say that is not okay with most of our patients, but we live in a pluralistic society and I think we should be respectful of that. And for some people, just being alive for a few more days is valuable to them. 
but you have to be really clear about what that means to be alive. That's not like at home with your family, having a good time. That's like here in my ICU with a breathing tube and you don't know what's going on. And so I think we are, the first thing we're looking for is, is that best case scenario really okay with them? I think the other thing that best case, worst case does is by showing what is most likely and showing what the worst case scenario is like, the family has at least heard that. And the patient maybe is even awake enough to tell you, I'm not okay with that, right? Like that worst case scenario sounds really bad to me, or even what you told me is most likely, I'm definitely not okay with that. So I don't see that there's a problem with operating if the best case scenario is plausible and okay with them. And then two days later saying, you know, this is what we were hoping for, but remember what I told you about most likely and worst case, that's where we are now, right? That best case scenario is gone because we actually have more knowledge today than we did two days ago. And I think what that does for patients and families is it stops that long drawn out thing that we do after surgery. And that feels bad for us because we're like, oh, I just assaulted this person before they die. But I actually think it's better for patients and families. And it's way better for our ICU team, which I think really sort of suffers watching these people sort of spin around the drain before they die. Right. That's that's exactly right. And I think that's why I pose that question, because I find myself sometimes in this scenario. And again, think of doing a good job with this. And I think, man, it's really not for me personally, I don't think this is the right thing for the patient, but whether the patient and or family agrees, well, I, you know, we're going to go forward with surgery. I, I can't tell you how much better I personally feel, but more importantly, the family feels when it's two days post-op and everything's going down the drain because they know they were, they were warned. Um, they've had graphic aids in their hand. Say, you know, here we are, Doc. We're over on we're over on this side, you know, on this this worst case. And and man, it's it's even one person even told me this. It's it's uh, it's worse than the most likely that you thought. You know, those conversations, those goals of care conversations are so hard so many times because the patient isn't engaged in that conversation. But if the patient is engaged pre-op and we've talked about it as a group, you can say, you know, this is what your dad told us before surgery. We already heard from him that it was not okay to be in this state after surgery. And we gave it our best shot. And here we are. So it makes all those downstream conversations much easier. Um, A lot for the family, right? They have a ton of distress about like being the person who decided to pull the plug. Um, But it also, because they can anticipate this, your goals of care conversation is so much easier at that point. All right. Then last, after we elicited this response, we're going to make a clear recommendation based on patient's preferences. And again, Mm -hmm. we want to be in a position where hopefully through this conversation, maybe even more, you know, prior conversations, although you don't always have that luxury, that we have a good understanding of, of what that family and the patient would want so that we can say, maybe for Mr. Lombardi, you know, I, I based on what you're telling me, and you tell me, Gretchen, how do you, how do you set this up based on what you're telling me, uh, based on what I've learned, you know, I don't recommend surgery, or right. how do you kind of lay that out, especially when you're not recommending the, the major intervention as a surgeon that we're right. used to doing? Uh, you know, the idea is that you want to, yeah, you want to make a recommendation and show your work, right? It's not like you just run into the room and you're like, we shouldn't operate or let's do this, right? The idea is, this is what I know about your dad. This is what he told me, or this is what you are telling me is matters to him. 
I don't think we should move forward with surgery because you just told me he already hated the last five days here in the ICU. And then what we're going to do is put him through another two weeks here only to get him out of the hospital on dialysis and to a nursing home. And given that you told me that he was really struggling at home before he even got here, and now we're doing all these things to him that he already has told you that he hates I think if we do surgery, we're just going to do more of that stuff to him. And so we should really focus on his comfort. We should make sure that his family can come in and gather and be with him. Um, but I really don't think that we should move forward with surgery because we're just going to be doing all these, all these things he said are not okay with him. It's funny. We have a bunch of audio recordings where the family is like, doctor, what would you recommend if this was your father? And the surgeon would say, well, this is not my father. And I don't think that's very helpful. And I get why the surgeon is saying that they're saying, I don't, you know, I don't want to, you know, violate your autonomy by telling you what to do. But I think when we get those questions, what we should say is, it sounds like you're looking for a recommendation. And if you really feel like you understand them, then you could say, well, I, you know, this is what I heard and this is what I think we should do. And if you feel like you don't know enough about the person to make a good recommendation, you could say, I would like to make a recommendation, but I need to know a little bit more about your dad in order to do that well. And so I think, you know, we shy away from this idea that we should recommend, but patients and families are looking for it. And as long as you recommend something that's consistent with what they told you about who they are and what they're willing to tolerate and what outcomes are reasonable for them, then I think you can make a recommendation. You can do it in a way that does support their autonomy and doesn't abandon them. Right. And and I think answering you can answer that question. As surgeons, we're allowed to answer the question of, you know, if it was your dad or mom, what would you do? It's okay to answer that question if, like you said, you feel comfortable with the amount of information you've obtained from the family, the patient, et cetera, and you feel comfortable doing so. You don't have to, but that's okay to answer that question. I, 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 I certainly feel strongly about that. And the second thing is this, this is a great time to make a huge plug for our palliative care colleagues. Um, my goodness, are, are they, uh, an excellent resource? Um, and I, and, and my relatively short career uh, so far have seen, at least i feel like I've seen more and more acceptance and integration of palliative care, especially in, on the ICU side. And it is so, so important at wake med. I have a, a phenomenal palliative care team that I, I love to, when you get into these kinds of conversations to loop in, because it's always helpful if you're going to make a recommendation too, and especially if it's not surgery, uh, it may, uh, not always, but it may be helpful to have that palliative care team there uh, uh, backing you up or at least corroborating some of the things you're saying, or maybe even in the room at the same time to add in things because they always seem to know exactly the right thing to say when I'm struggling to try to describe something. So uh, it's a never, you know, load the boat, right? Uh, especially where we're starting the new academic year soon. This still applies to everyone throughout their whole long careers. Load the boat in scenarios like this. Yeah. And I think, you know, best case, worst case is such a nice way to collaborate with them because they don't actually know what it would look like to go through surgery and having that graphic aid and sort of setting up this conversation and then getting them um, to come in with the hard parts at the end, the sort of elicitation of preferences and talking about what it would be like if we did comfort focused palliative care. Um, 
you know, my friend Toby Campbell says, you know, he often gets called in and the neurosurgeon will say, and Dr. Campbell is here to tell you what doing nothing looks like. And so I think it's really important not to set them up for, you know, this idea of doing nothing and really saying, you know, there are people who are specialists in this hospital who can really help us with this idea of focusing on your dad's comfort. And, um, you know, they're going to help us talk through this as well. That's, that's phenomenal. And this, this conversation, Gretchen, makes me happy to my core because I think this is such an important, important topic. And I love the, the framework that you've established with best case, worst case scenario. And so more information can be, can be found at the Patient Preferences Project, which is patientpreferences.org, which is your website. It has a ton of useful stuff on there. Uh, two of the most useful things, I think, are the link to the whiteboard videos, which are really well done, 10 minutes long or so give you all the information you need. And I think something like this, we're, we're, we're describing a graphic aid. Go ahead and watch the video so you can actually see it too. Um, and I've rewatched those videos countless times. And the second thing is a toolkit as well. So a full toolkit that uh, teaches you what you need to know about best case, worst case scenario and has some uh, pocket cards and aids, but also uh, tells you how to teach others too. And so that can be helpful just if you're really getting into this to read and say, okay, well, to understand how you teach others is a key to understanding it for yourself as well. Uh, so lots more to talk about with uh, uh, Dr. Schwartz. So we're going to bring her back for a second episode where we're going to be covering tips and tricks for difficult end-of-life conversations with surgical patients in a more broader sense. So uh, please don't miss that. Uh, and, and if you can uh, spare two minutes of your time, if you like the work we're doing here behind the knife, please leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening through. It, it does a lot uh, for us and it matters a lot on the back end. So until next time, dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 